0: Uh, Once again, I want to reiterate that this podcast is not intended to be an extremely elaborate or detailed account of any of the events that I cover over the course of the podcast. All it is is supposed to be a crash course in all of the events that took place that I cover. So if you want to learn more about anything that I cover on this podcast, I almost want to say visit your local library, but I'm not going to say that. But feel free to do your own research. I always encourage that. So with that being said, enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. I apologize for not having an episode out last week. Last week was a little bit wild for me. It was finals week. I had a lot to do, so I didn't get an episode out like I hoped. And this episode, for depending on where you are in the world, may drop on a Friday instead of a Thursday. Where I am where I am today, it will be dropping on a Thursday, Thursday night. Um, and I apologize if it came out on Friday. Yeah, try to drop my episodes on Thursdays. Uh, this one took a little bit, and by a little bit I mean a lot more research than I initially expected it to. I knew it was going to take a lot, but I had no idea just how deep I was going to have to dive into everything that I dive into in this episode. So, profoundest apologies in that arena. Now, with that being said, let's just dive right into this. Today, we're going to be talking about the most famous work, written work of all time. I think that's completely indisputable that this is the absolute most famous work in in the world. And this work that we're going to be talking about is the Bible. So, I... I'm not going to mince words here. Let's just go ahead. Let's start. The Bible revolutionized the world, not necessarily only in a religious tone, but it was the very first book to be printed using movable type, invented by Johannes Gutenberg. Gutenberg's printing press made it possible for the common folk to own books, which previously they had been transcribed by hand by monks or other religious figures. The Bible was the very first manuscript that Gutenberg mass-produced, giving rise to the name the Gutenberg Bible. Since then, it has been revised, reinterpreted, and retold, and possesses some of the most widely recognized allegories in history. As a disclaimer, this is not a religious episode. I am taking purely a secular stance on the subject and analyzing the events that transpired to create the Bible as we know it today. Tradition in religious circles dictates that God wrote the Bible, inspiring his prophets to transcribe certain texts that would come to be a set of rules and guidelines for people throughout history to turn to for guidance. That being said, about 40 different people, both known and anonymous, contributed stories to the Bible, and in this episode, we're going to crash course through as many of those authors as we can, and then explore how these stories came to be on our residential bookshelves in the 21st century. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, it's important to understand that those who wrote the stories the Bible contains did so for different reasons. The Bible contains many forms of writing, some oral tradition written down through the ages, some ancient songs, simply wise sayings, letters and decrees, historical record, eyewitness testimony, etc. And there are four types of authors. One, prophets who wrote and taught by divine inspiration such as Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, etc., Two, sages who were wise people like Solomon, King Solomon, who taught proverbs and wrote poetry. Historians, number three, who wrote down historical events to make a theological point like Matthew and Luke. Four, apostles who were close followers of Jesus Christ during his ministry, who wrote letters and eyewitness accounts of Christ's doings in his lifetime. Included with apostles are their associates, who weren't necessarily apostles but wrote down the teachings of the apostles they associated with. After each collection of books was written, they were compiled by scribes and scholars who took them through a three-step process. First, the stories were compiled, organized, and presented. Sometimes documents spanned hundreds of years and needed to be organized to create a a cohesive text, such as the books of Psalms and Proverbs. Second, the stories were preserved and copied, often in monasteries or in other religious settings. Third, the stories were canonized, and this... Human beings decided which stories would be included in the Bible, and that's what canonized them. Now, all those things being said, let's get into it. To get to the beginning, we've got to go way back, 3,000 years back. According to Christian and Jewish religious beliefs corroborated by evidence, the first five books of the Bible with the entirety of the Jewish Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written by Moses, the guy who led the Hebrews out of Egypt to escape genocide as an infant, called down the deadly plagues among Pharaoh, and all that fun stuff. These books could date back as far as 1500 BCE, but the Jewish faith didn't adopt them as religious texts until around 700 BCE. Some scholars argue that it was written around then and that Moses was a legendary figure rather than a real person, but many of those same scholars also note that there may have been a historical figure very similar to Moses that used the pen name of Moses when writing the historical texts that would become the first five books. But Deuteronomy is complicated. Tradition backed up by evidence dictates that the book was a speech given by Moses to the Israelites a day before they would get across the river Jordan and take possession of the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, and parts of Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. At the time, the land was being encroached upon by the Egyptian empire, and Moses led his people there before they could arrive. But since the people loved to whine and complain about the problems they were having, God prevented Moses from going to the promised land with them. The night before they crossed the river, Moses gave this speech as a stern warning to them about what their behavior should and should not be when they get into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, Moses clarifies some of the teachings of Exodus and slightly revises it. It serves as a prequel to the next few books that detail what happened in the ensuing colonization of Canaan. It becomes slightly complicated when the book is found by the high priests of Josiah who reigned over Judah from 632 BCE to his death in 609 BCE. Now it's complicated because somehow this book found its way into the temple uh, that Josiah was governing over at the time and somehow it wasn't found until that point. This is referenced in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. In the King James Version, the scripture says that the high priest said to the scribe that he'd found the book of the law inside an old temple, and this book became the basis for many of Josiah's religious reforms throughout his kingdom. The complications I've referenced are concerning who transcribed Deuteronomy. If it was Moses who delivered the speech, who wrote it down, and who preserved it? is that transcribing what we have in the bible today or was it mistranslated in some way by Josiah's priests did those priests add anything to the book we just don't have answers to those questions so now we've got just got to move on following these first five books are what would come to be known as the deuteronom i've i've had such a hard time saying this this whole week deuteronomistic history a term coined in the 1940s to label the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. A popular theory states that these books were written by a single individual, but as further studies are done on the texts, this theory doesn't really hold much water. These books are believed to have been written in the 6th century BCE, and their authors are unknown. The first part of Joshua reflects the stories of conquest in the land of Canaan, as I said before, which reflects a time in the 7th century BCE under the rule of King Josiah, but the latter part seems to take place after the fall and destruction of Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar II and the Neo-Babylonian Empire in 586 BCE. It could easily be argued that it was written by more than one author, Because the book of Judges spans several centuries, predating the events of the book of Joshua, beginning in the 8th century BCE and lasting until the Babylonian exile around 550 BCE, possibly after the events of the book of Joshua have come to pass. And because the book of Judges spans so much longer than another book that is included with the Deuteronomistic history, it's very unlikely that one person wrote the entire saga. Now, the books of Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, also have unspecified authors and unspecified dates of writing. Ballpark estimates put them between the 6th and 4th centuries BCE. Now, on to 1st and 2nd Chronicles and the book of Ezra. All three were traditionally written by Ezra, a scribe and high priest in the 5th century BCE, followed by the book of Nehemiah, written by Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle the resettlement of the city of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed a century earlier, and in this story, the second temple era is established, and that will come into play in just a moment. The book of Esther is an interesting one to research. Some contemporary scholars argue that due to Esther's vivid characters and captivating story, inconsistencies in the storyline, amount of quoted dialogue, and exaggerations in amounts of money, people, and time, the story can be considered a myth. But other scholars, primarily in Jewish circles, argue that the story was chronicled by Mordecai, one of the story's main characters, and cousin to Esther, and that the story was rewritten by an assembly of high priests governing the land of Israel in the Second Temple Era. As stated previously, around the time and geographic location that Ezra and Nehemiah were writing their books. Whether that assembly penned the story for themselves or revised a previously written story is up for debate, but my two cents is this Esther's story contains no mentions of God, so why would the high priests want that story in with the rest of the records? The high priests were religious figures, not storytellers, and I don't think that they could fabricate such a drama as the book of Esther themselves. I don't think they wrote that story. Whether or not someone else wrote down a true story, an exaggerated event, or made it up altogether is a different conversation. The book of Job is another complicated one. Officially, like several other books, no one knows who wrote it, so there is a lot of speculation around its creation. The story of Job is one of the more famous and beloved stories in the Bible, a story of faith in the midst of immense suffering and loss. So, who could have written it? There's the obvious explanation that some unknown sage or historian through the years documented or penned the story and a scholar stumbled upon it when, he was, when it was discovered and decided it was worthy of inclusion in the grand text of the Bible, and no one will ever know who it was simply because there's no possible way of tracing that authorship. But this book sent me down a rabbit hole of research, and I sorted through some dusty books and websites to come to the tentative conclusion that I personally have reached. Among many other ancient texts, transcripts from the book of Job were found in the Qumran caves along with the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s. Many other manuscripts were discovered with this book, including fragments of every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther, deepening the mystery of the book of Esther. But in terms of the book of Job, some signs actually point to the idea that Moses wrote the book. First of all, it could be argued that Moses wrote many of the anonymously written books in the Old Testament as the things that he wrote were found in no particular order along with the rest of the claimed texts. That being said, I have some other evidence. The figure of Job was a wealthy merchant in the land of Uz, I think I'm pronouncing that right, which was in northwestern modern-day Saudi Arabia, and it is documented in the Bible that Moses spent 40 years in the land of Medean, also located in western Saudi Arabia. Modern scholars agree that Moses was not alive during the time that the tale of Job took place because during Moses' time, there was no peace in the land of Israel, as it is detailed in the story of Job, but such a story could have become a popular tale in the region at the time and carried along through word of mouth. Moses could have seen the story as influential in telling of the nature of God and written it down. Whether the story is true or not, I won't go into too much of what I've researched in the past two weeks because, trust me, it's a rabbit hole, but I believe there is evidence to support the statement that Moses wrote the book of Job. Of course, I have no proof, but this is what I'm settling into as a reasonable explanation of authorship. From Job, we get into Psalms and Proverbs. These scriptures span centuries, if not millennia. Many of the Psalms are credited to King David, who slew the giant with a sling and the stone and eventually succumbed to the beauty of Bathsheba. And in all, there are 150 chapters in Psalms, and King David is credited to writing at least 70 of them. Along with King David, other writers include our friend Moses, who seems to keep popping up through all this, Solomon, a wise king of Israel and successor to King David, Ethan and Heman, wise priests from the time of Solomon, Azaph, another wise man and musician from the time of Solomon, and the sons of Korah. Korah was a man who rebelled against God and actually practically started a revolution to overthrow the theocracy of the land at the time, but God basically put that to a swift end. Korah's sons, however, were spared of God's wrath and made disciples of the Lord. Now, for a bit more mystery, 50 chapters in Psalms are written anonymously. Chronologically, we really have no idea in what order the Psalms were written, but most were likely written during the time of King David and King Solomon. And King Solomon also jotted down most of the book of Proverbs. As a means to give his people direction in a lifelong manner, spanning from devoted worship to treatment of your neighbors, King David wrote at least chapters 1 through 29 of Proverbs. Chapter 30 was written by a man named Agur, who compiled the book, and King Lemuel, who we know very little about. Interestingly enough, this is the only mention of either of these characters in the entire Bible. Some speculate that King Lemuel is actually King David under a pen name. Why would he do that? Who knows? Speculation, after all. Now, on Ecclesiastes, the only mention of authorship in the book is the self-reference the writer makes of the name Koholet which is a Hebrew term meaning something along the lines of one who convenes or addresses an assembly. Jewish tradition maintains that the book was written by Solomon. After all, the book is included between Psalms, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon, all of which either Solomon helped to write or were written near the time he was around, but modern studies challenge this. The chief evidence to support this is the presence of Persian phraseology in the text. Tradition holds that the book was written in the western Middle East by Solomon, who ruled in the 10th century BCE, but the Persian Empire did not expand into this area until the 6th century BCE, making it unlikely that Solomon would be familiar with this way of speaking in his time period. The other question raised in the writings of Ecclesiastes is that the rhetoric switches between first and third person several times throughout the book. This suggests that there is both a narrator and an author, which begs the question, if, hypothetically, Solomon had a hand in writing the book, was he the narrator or the author? And who was the second figure who had a hand in writing the book? Now let's talk about the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a collection of love poems traditionally understood to have been written by Solomon. The rhetoric deviates from much of the standard works of the Bible in that it celebrates aspects of human sexuality in its language, even rejoicing in human intimacy. It's interpreted as a back and forth between a man and a woman, filled with passionate, rapturous love and profound devotion and there have been various understandings of the meaning behind the poems over the centuries, most being allegorical or cultic. Jewish tradition dictates that the poems are allegorical and symbolic of God's love for the Israelites, whom he had made a sacred covenant with. Among Christians, it is a similar interpretation depicting God's love for his covenant church. Medieval mysticism understood the Song of Solomon as a measure of the love existing between Christ and the human soul. My whole understanding of this book was thrown into disarray while researching for this episode. I'll try not to be too extensive, but this was pretty intense for me, and I'm going to convey what I discovered as eloquently as I possibly can. The book is called The Song of Solomon. The first verse even says, quote, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. I thought that Solomon and his wife were just singing to each other, talking about how much love there was in their relationship. I'm being totally honest. I researched to understand, and I've definitely gained a greater understanding here. There is no explicit evidence that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon. While some Bible scholars were totally aware of this, this was absolutely news to me. The book originally wasn't called the Song of Solomon. In the original Hebrew, it was called the Song of Songs. It wasn't until the Latin translation in the 4th century Common Era that Solomon was named as the author. While the text does mention Solomon several times, there is no explicit mention of any author time period of writing or circumstances of its composition. The only evidence of the time of writing is the presence of the Aramaic terminology within the text. And the Aramaic language slowly replaced Hebrew in the centuries after the Babylonian exile, which could place this writing in those centuries, possibly 500 years after the reign of Solomon. Again, only speculation. I feel it's important to think about these things and ponder the possibilities. In the end, a lot of the Bible experts agree that the most plausible interpretations for the Song of Solomon is that it is a collection of poems written separately with no connection, collected to exhibit the profound joy that love can bring to the lives of all those who choose to pursue it. Continuing forward, we reach the book of Isaiah, arguably one of the most profound and prophetic books in the Bible, and the history of the book is shrouded in mystery. The book is full of vivid imagery and often cryptic phraseology and has stumped many a faithful reader of the Old Testament as to its true meaning. Contrary to other, to several other books I covered just recently, there is nearly indisputable evidence that Isaiah was a real person and a prominent religious figure of his time. He lived in the 8th century BCE, and that is when it is thought that he composed much of the book of Isaiah. I say much of it because most biblical scholars agree that the book of Isaiah was not a book written by one person. The evidence of this is pretty significant, but as always, I'll try to keep it short. First of all, after chapter 39 of the book all the way until the end of the 65 chapter saga, Isaiah's name ceases to be mentioned entirely. Just want to put that out there. Next, the first 33 chapters of Isaiah discuss a day of judgment as if it is something to be preparing for, specifically in chapter 22 where Isaiah forewarns of the battering down of walls and the cry of help to the mountains from the city of Jerusalem, promising the restoration of Judah. Around chapter 40, there is an obvious change of tone. Following chapter 34, that day of judgment is referred to as an event that has already come to pass, and that restoration is coming soon. This could be attributed to the fact that the Babylonian exile came to pass several centuries after Isaiah was a prophet, and this could be the judgment that Isaiah is referring to in his writings. This theory definitely holds water, and if correct, It would place the authorship of the first half of the book in the 8th century BCE and the second half in the 6th century BCE or later, possibly as late as the 3rd century BCE. Okay, we're past the point of the extremely complicated stuff. Next up, we have the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. There is a scholarly consensus that the book of Jeremiah was written either mostly or entirely by the prophet Jeremiah, who was a real historical figure, mostly because Jeremiah spends a lot of time speaking in first person. The book of Lamentations is also attributed to the writings of Jeremiah, but that is only because a scripture in 2 Chronicles alludes to this. The scripture reads, in the King James translation, And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. And all the singing women spake of Josiah in their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel, and behold, they are written in the lamentations. End quote. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Something that can be pointed out is that the scripture describes Jeremiah lamenting the death of King Josiah. While King Josiah and Jeremiah were definitely around at the same time, there is no mention of King Josiah in the Book of Lamentations, and that makes it peculiar that a single scripture attributes Jeremiah to the writings of an entire book of the Bible. It's possible that Jeremiah did write the Book of Lamentations. I'm not trying to play devil's advocate. I'm just trying to keep an open mind about everything. So let's keep going. For the next several books, things will get a bit less complicated, In these books, we have Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And that takes us to the end of the Old Testament. The authorship of most of these books, with the exception of a few editions by later prophetic assemblies, lie pretty soundly with the prophets who bear the names of these books. One exception, however, is the book of Daniel. King Daniel is Bible famous, as I stated before. He got thrown into the lion's den. Everybody knows the story of King Daniel. But that doesn't mean he wrote the book of Daniel. In the book, chapters 1 through 6 are written by an anonymous narrator. While Daniel could have written this as a preface to the stories he'd like to tell about his life, it's likely that only the rest of the book, chapters 7 through 12, are written by Daniel, and the rest was written by an educated Jew or Hebrew who wanted to document Daniel's life. This theory is further supported by the fact that the anonymous narrator introduces Daniel twice in chapters 7 and 10. Besides this, the rest of the books of the Old Testament are pretty clearly the work of the prophets they are named after, if not by the scribes who wrote down what those prophets said. Now, on to the New Testament. This is where we leave the Judeo-Christian section of the Bible and enter into strictly Christian territory where Jesus Christ comes into play. With that, let's look at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To begin, we have to understand one thing. All four books are written anonymously. All are attributed to the names of several authoritative figures in Christian history, but none of those figures ever take explicit authorship of any of the books at any time in their writings. That being said, These four books are narratives surrounding the life of Jesus Christ. They are often read at a household nativity when Christian families prepare to celebrate Christmas, with many stories from Christ's life told throughout different perspectives. It's nearly impossible to know for sure who wrote these books, but it is plausible that those who wrote the books were present for much of Jesus' life and witnessed certain events differently, which is why they are included with the New Testament. It's also plausible that the stories were written down during the reign of Emperor Nero during the late 1st century AD and his attempts to stifle Christianity. Perhaps some faithful and educated Christians took traditional stories from Christ's life that had been passed down for the last 50 years and made sure they were written down and hidden away to escape Nero's wrath. If this were true... It could possibly lend an explanation to some of the miraculous deeds that Christ accomplished during his ministry, such as raising a girl from the dead and feeding a multitude with only a few loaves of bread and several fish. These stories could have been slightly corrupted while playing intergenerational telephone, and while based primarily on true events, may have been exaggerated. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious in any way. My whole purpose is to cause people to think a bit more about certain things. Following these Gospels are the acts of the Apostles following the resurrection and ascension of Christ. These acts are supposedly written by the disciple Luke, who also supposedly contributed to the book of Luke. Ha ha. Luke is connected to the Apostle Paul, mentioned as a companion of his in the next several letters he writes that are also included in the Bible. Next, We have the Epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, the Epistle of Paul to the Galatians, the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians, the Epistle of Paul to the Colossians, the Epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, the Epistle of Paul to Timothy, the Epistle of Paul to Titus, and the Epistle of Paul to Philemon, and the Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. Following these epistles, we have the Epistle of James. James claims to be, quote, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. He is also rumored to have been Jesus Christ's half-brother, and his epistle was written to the twelve tribes of Israel scattered abroad. It was likely the first document to have been written following the death of Christ. Last, we have the two general epistles of the Apostle Peter, and finally the two general epistles of the Apostle John, also known as John the Revelator, which famously detail the apocalyptic events that will precede the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus Christ. I could go real deep into each of these books, but for the sake of time, I won't. After all these documents were gathered in Hebrew, Aramaic, Persian dialects, Greek, Roman, and other languages, they were translated to Latin in the 3rd century CE, and in the 4th century CE, when Christianity was adopted by the Roman Empire, the Bible was produced on a larger scale to fill the various buildings of worship across the empire. But until the 14th century was purely to be used by the ministers in the Catholic Church, with very few exceptions. In the 13th and 14th century, several sects, labeled as heretical by the mainstream Catholic Church, began showing interest in having personal copies of the Bible, rather than having them read in a language they didn't understand over the pulpit. In France, a group of people known as the Cathars, I also don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, were suppressed by the Catholic Church when they expressed their desires... In the 14th century, John Wycliffe and his followers translated the Bible into English and began spreading it among the people as much as they could, creating the Wycliffe Bible. Wycliffe was also labeled as a heretic and excommunicated from the Catholic Church before his death. After many others expressed their opinions about translating the Bible to the common tongue, a scholar named William Tyndale, who was fluent in French, Greek, Hebrew, German, Italian, Latin, and Spanish, decided, he was going to act. Tyndale worked tirelessly while running and hiding from the authorities of the Holy Roman Empire in the 16th century, eventually completing several translations of the New Testament before being captured and put to death. Tyndale's work was completed by Miles Coverdale, who accomplished the task of translating the entire Bible outside of the authority of the Catholic Church. Not only did Tyndale's Bibles challenge the Catholic Church in giving the Bible to someone other than the church authority, but it also challenged the authority of that same church. Tyndale did not believe that a Catholic leader was to be an intermediary between God and the common people, and it can be argued that a publication of his Bible set into motion the Protestant Reformation, which led to the mass production of the Bible for the common people, and the book as we know it today in its various translations and interpretations. And with that being said, that's the end of the podcast today. I'd like to enter my two, my two cents a little bit. I learned a lot about the Bible in studying for this episode. And I learned a lot about, uh, I, I grew up in a religious household and I learned that many of the things that people had told to me in my upbringing, not just in my family, but other leaders, religious leaders, much of what they had told to me was not necessarily correct. And the people that they thought had written certain books of the Bible, perhaps didn't actually write those books. Now, even though that could be posed as a challenge to faith, again, I'm not saying what kind of faith I am, if I'm still faithful at all. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying this book has inspired a lot of people to do a lot of good in the world. So who cares really if it wasn't written by the people that it says it was written by? If the words themselves deliver the kind of inspiration that they were meant to, in my opinion, doesn't really matter who it was written by, but it is fascinating to learn that some of these things that I'd learned growing up were not necessarily correct. Doesn't mean that all religion is terrible. Just means that there's a lot to learn still. And as always... That's how I like to close my podcast. There's always more to learn. Thank you for tuning in to Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I think this is the longest episode I've done up to this point. So, thank you for joining me. I will be back next week with another episode. This is Tanner Talking About Stuff That Happened. Signing out. See you next week.